So I know what you're thinking. Aren't you supposed to be on sabbatical? And so I actually am on sabbatical. I, I in fact, I was away uh, for a prayer retreat at a, a Benedictine monastery, uh, and I'm I'm back. And even though I'm still kind of on, I'm still on sabbatical. I still plan to preach a couple times during the upcoming weeks. In fact, I'm really psyched to be talking about this morning's uh, passage. We are in the sixth week of our series through the book of Daniel. And today we find ourselves like once again in really familiar territory. Okay, as we look at this situation in chapter six that calls Daniel to be passed into a lion's den. And so let's just review where we've been so far. The theme of this book is that we can stand firm because God stands firm. Like we can stand firm because God stands firm. God alone is the hero of the story. The theme of Daniel is the sovereignty of God, the absolute sovereignty of God in all things. And He is the hero of this book and He is the one whose plans can never, ever be thwarted. Like we stand firm because God stands firm because He has spoken and He will do it. In fact, we see in this book that God stands with those who stand firm for Him. Like we've seen that play out over and over again in the lives of Daniel and the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In fact, the previous five chapters of this book are a record of God's faithfulness to His people. And today's story is no different. Now remember, we saw this a couple weeks ago. There's a pattern that we follow throughout this book and a pattern in all of these stories. And here it is. First part is that God's people faced a test of some kind. Like a, a trial, a hardship, a challenge, a, a temptation to like compromise their convictions. But then they're faithful. Like in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that hardship, they're faithful. They stand firm like Martin Luther. Their conscience is captive to the Word of God. They assign it to their heart that they will not defile themselves. And as a result, they're victorious, right? Like when the world says give in, the faithful dig in. And they're victorious. They, they, and you need to remember this. Remember, faithfulness always equals victory. Like faithfulness will always, always, always equal victory. That's what God is looking to. And as a result in the stories, uh, they receive a rich reward. Like we saw this a couple weeks ago in the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we found that when you stand firm, like when you stand firm for Christ, you win even when you lose. Like you can't lose even when you do lose. I mean, we saw that in their lives as they stood their test and they said, we know that God can deliver us from this fiery furnace, but even if He doesn't, we will not bow. Because they knew that you, you're either going to have victory or you're going to have victory. You're either going to receive a reward or you're going to receive a reward. Like you need to remain faithful and God will do something with that. And whether He takes you home to heaven or sees you through that trial, you will be rewarded. You will be victorious. And so with that as the backdrop and kind of the outline, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 1. It says that it pleased Darius to set over the 
kingdom, 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps could give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. The idea is that so the king wouldn't be ripped off, so he wouldn't be defrauded. Like government corruption is not anything new. Now we need to understand at this point in Daniel's life, he is probably at least 85 years old. Like he has been serving faithfully these two conquering kingdoms for over 70 years. In fact, he has stayed behind in Babylon even as the Jews have been given freedom now to leave their captivity and go back to the promised land. Verse 3, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was found in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. I mean, we see this pattern too throughout the book of Daniel. Like chapter 5 tells us that Daniel had ruled with insight, intelligence, and wisdom under Nebuchadnezzar. And that he was referred to even by the pagans as someone who had a spirit of the gods within him. Like the bottom line is he was a cut above all the other leaders. Like the king noticed this, like this guy was the guy. Like this is the guy that we read about in chapter one that was made by God ten times wiser than all the wise men of Babylon. Then the high officials and the satraps fought, sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So these other 122 government officials like learn that the top spot in the kingdom is going to go to Daniel. And so they have a little private meeting and they said, we got to do something about this. Like this isn't right. This guy's not even one of us. Like he's from Judea. Like he's a foreigner. Like we can't let this guy rule over us. I mean, this Daniel has an excellent spirit in him, but these guys had a spirit of envy, a spirit of deceit, and so they were seeking to find a way to, in a sense, diminish Daniel in the eyes of the king. But the only problem was, Daniel was a man of God. Like his books were all in order. His numbers all added up. He had not ever given or taken a bribe from anyone, and he had never used his position to enrich himself as probably most of these other 122 had done. You see, the secret of Daniel's success is that he was, it says right there in the text, he was faithful. Regardless of who ruled over Babylon, because he knew that God ruled over that person. Like regardless of who was in the position where they held the title king, Daniel knew that God was the king of kings and lord of lords and he was faithful to God. And as a result, Daniel did his job, right? Like that's pretty an easy formula to remember. Like Daniel's secret of success is he did the things that he was supposed to do and he didn't do the things that he wasn't supposed to do and he remained faithful primarily to God. And so chapter 6, as one writer puts it, begins with an incredible miracle. We have an honest politician 
Maybe the first one you've ever known. Like He is above reproach. He gives them nothing to exploit. Nothing to use. They can't bring Him down. So what are they going to do? Verse 5, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. You see, these guys knew something. They knew that they could count on a man of God to be a man of God. Right? So they had to pit his faithfulness to God against his faithfulness to King Darius. Like Tony Evans writes this, he says, uh, consider yourself blessed if the only thing your enemies can say about you is that you're too faithful to God. Because that's what the enemies of Daniel could say about him. Like they knew that Daniel served Darius without fault. He'd never ripped him off. However, one thing he would not do is he would never worship this guy. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. Side note, he won't. Like y'all get that, right? O king, live forever. There's only one king who will live forever. And then they begin to lie. They say all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors all agree. No, they don't all agree that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Like if you've been reading this book with us, it seems like these guys are always casting somebody somewhere. That's like their, their go-to move, right? Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then verse 9, Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Hey, king, we have this great idea. Darius Appreciation Month. Like, it's going to be great. Like for 30 days, you will be the only mediator between God and man. Like you'll be like the, the God keeper of the month. Doesn't that sound great? And of course, Darius, like Nebuchadnezzar and every other king before him, was easily tripped up by his own pride. If you listened a couple weeks ago to Pastor Michael's message as he dealt with this in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, it's easy for us to look at earthly kings like that and say, these guys are just the worst. They're so arrogant. Like, can you believe that? But if we look too closely at a Nebuchadnezzar, we might see ourselves. Like, what would you do if you had that kind of power? What would you become if you were accountable to no one. And that's the problem here with Darius. Like we have seen this pattern before. Pride will turn you into a fool. And so he signs this into law. It becomes the law of the land. And how does Daniel respond? Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. 
What's Daniel's response? Well, his response was to do what he's always done, right? Like this man of God meets with God as often as he eats. Like three times a day, he gets before that window and he kneels and he prays towards Jerusalem, kind of following the the admonition from Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple from 1 Kings chapter 8 where he says, hey, if you guys ever sin against God to the point where you are actually taken away into captivity to a foreign land, if you in the foreign land cry out and repent and pray toward this great city and this land that the Lord has given you, He will let you back. And so that's what he is doing for 70 years. Like for 70 years, this is the pattern of his life. Three times a day, praying toward Jerusalem, giving thanks to God. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. I mean, Daniel was so consistent in his prayer life that they knew his schedule. Then they came near and said, before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? Hey, I, I remember something about, I don't know, a new law that you know was a 30-day ban on prayer. Am I remembering that correctly? And the king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, not even one of us, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. I mean, that sounds like something right out of Daniel chapter 3, right? This is the same kind of accusation they brought before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These guys won't even honor you, king, or bow down to the image that you have made. This man, Daniel, listens to no one. He doesn't listen to you, and yet he prays three times a day to his God. Verse 14, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. You see, the law of the Medes and the Persians gave him no wiggle room. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into a den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions, no entertainment were brought to him. And sleep fled from him. He spends a night in anguish. And then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, 
servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent His angel. Maybe the same one from Daniel chapter 3. He sent His angel to shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before Him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. I mean, it's interesting. Like Daniel's accusers probably spent the night partying. The king spent a sleepless night in anguish and the only one who got a good night's sleep was Daniel. Like He was more comfortable in the lion's den sleeping with these ferocious beasts than the king was in his royal palace. The king was fasting and the lions were fasting that night. Like It's better to be a child of God in a den of lions than a godless king in a palace. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Sounds like chapter 3 again. He didn't even have the smell of smoke upon him. He didn't even have the smell of lions upon him. No harm overcame him. And the king commanded to those men who had maliciously accused Daniel to be brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Man, that is harsh. Like, you don't want to mess with the Medes and the Persians. So guys, as a kind of a bottom line for this text, this really is the story simply of a faithful 85-year-old man of God. Like his life teaches us to stand firm even if it costs you everything. Like we've seen that play out again and again and again through these chapters. Like Daniel rests in the theme of this book. Right? That we can stand firm because God stands firm and that God stands for those who stand firm for Him. And so we read this passage and we can get a lot of encouragement from these stories of faithfulness. But it's really important, guys, as we complete the biographical section of the book of Daniel, it's really important that we don't make of this story something that it is not. Like we can focus on Daniel's miraculous deliverance and completely skip over the tragic context of that deliverance. You need to get that. Like we can so focused on the fact that here is this guy who was faithful to God and he just spent the night hanging out with a bunch of lions and they pulled him out and he was promoted and it all worked out great and everybody applauds and we're encouraged and we want to be the next guy thrown in so that we can live too. Like We can so focus on the deliverance that we really do skip over the tragic context of this story. Daniel had been ripped from the arms of his mom and dad as probably a 15-year-old boy and taken to a foreign land where he was basically a slave. And they'd asked him to change everything about him. His name, his diet, how he dressed, his language. And yet he had served faithfully 
like in this pagan land for 70 years. And yet, what did he have to show for it? I mean, he had been serving God faithfully. Like doing his job, doing the things he was supposed to do, not doing the things he wasn't supposed to do, and remaining faithful primarily to God. And yet, at this point, Daniel is an old man facing the jealousy of every one of his peers and the arrogance of a king that he probably thought was his friend. And then facing a death sentence in a lion's den. Like no spiritual awakening was recorded to have swept the land during his long life in Babylon. In fact, Babylon was unchanged. See, Daniel had trusted the Lord and served long and hard and faithfully. And yet, what we learn from his life is that he wants us to stand firm even if it seemingly accomplishes nothing. And guys, that's really important. Because that's the trap we fall into. Like we are tempted to give in because the world says give in because if you take your stand, it's not going to make a difference. Right? You can stand there and hold to your Christian convictions, but nobody cares what you say. You'll just end up being on the outside. Nobody's going to listen. So what's the point? And so what do we know when the world says give in? The faithful should instead dig in because God says stand firm and don't judge as the world judges. Like we only see the here and now. We don't know what God is going to do with the faithfulness of a man like Daniel. And we don't know what God's going to do with our faithfulness. Like Daniel's life exemplifies what it means to be a true disciple, a true follower of Christ. What Eugene Peterson would describe as a long obedience in the same direction. That's Daniel. Daniel is just a grinder. Daniel just focuses on doing what he's supposed to do and remaining faithful to God. He's going to do his job. He's going to be a blessing to the king and to the kingdom, but he's never going to be unfaithful to God. And as a result, Daniel finished well. Guys, I cannot stress that enough. Daniel finished well. How many people do you know who finished well? Who didn't at some point just get off course? They get to that age of foolishness where they think it's their time now. Like you never see that in the life of Daniel. Like he stays his course. Like Daniel understood that trials, that discouragement, that these tests, that temptations to compromise would always come in waves, right? Like when one comes, you can just expect, give it a minute, and there's going to be another one. And his whole life was testing. His whole life was trials. His whole life was hardship. One after another. Like Daniel knew that it doesn't get easier to follow God as you get older. The temptations don't go away. As your body weakens, they tend to strengthen. Daniel knew that past performance is not a guarantee of future results. That past faithfulness is no substitute for present faithfulness. In fact, he knew that past faithfulness simply prepared us for that next wave of discouragement, that next wave of trial or testing. 
that next wave of temptation to compromise. You see, Daniel lived as a pilgrim. He knew he was a stranger and an alien there in Babylon. He knew where his true identity lied. He, he was a pilgrim. See, pilgrims know that they're just passing through. Pilgrims live their life on a journey, spending their lives going somewhere else. And that's Daniel. In fact, in a verse that could have been written about Daniel, and maybe it was in 1 Peter 2, Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. You see, we're all going to face the same test and it really comes down to will you live as a pilgrim? in this world? Like, will you live knowing that this is ultimately not my home? Or will you live as many Christians live as a tourist? Right? I mean, tourists are just passing through also, right? But tourists are there for themselves. Tourists are there for the selfie. Tourists are there for the best meals. Tourists are the ones who complain when the service is not good. I mean, tourists are there for the best of life to get the most out of it and then kind of move on to the next step. They're very different from the pilgrim. Or you could live like you're a homesteader. Like this life is where I'm going to plant my life and this is all there is and I'm just going to focus right here and right now. Or you can live as a pilgrim. Somebody who's on a journey. Someone who is going somewhere else. In fact, they're going into the kingdom. 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But when we face the fiery trial, it tends that we always are surprised, right? Like we read the Scripture and we know that the overwhelming example of God's people living faithfully in this world was that they faced unbelievable opposition. Like we know that was true of them, we just don't expect it to be true of us. Like we know the Scripture that Jesus said that the world will hate us because it hates Him and we're identified with Him. But when the world hates us, we're surprised and we think, oh, I must have explained it the wrong way. No, the reason they hate you is that you explained it the right way. Like the world is going to hate you because your loyalty lies with Christ. In fact, all of your life, as I've said over and over again over the years, all of your life is ultimately a test of your loyalty to Christ. Every situation, every opportunity, every decision, every trial, whatever the test is, whatever the temptation, it is ultimately a test of your loyalty to Jesus Christ. Will you align yourself with Him? You see, Christian character is not forged in these moments of crisis. They're simply revealed there. Like when something squeezes you, what comes out is what was in you. Like the enemy didn't add that to you. That was what was in you. And when Daniel's life is squeezed, faithfulness comes out. His walk with God in those non-crisis times prepared him for the crisis times. It shaped his character to make him into someone who stands firm. 
Like for Daniel, the cost had been counted long ago. Like we said over and over, he decided before he had to decide, before he faced this trial that seems so unique, but he had faced dozens before this, he had already decided, I will not be unfaithful to God. He determined in his heart that unfaithfulness was not an option. And if it comes down to obeying the law of God or the law of the land, Daniel knew which one he would choose. And as a result, he passed the test. But the interesting thing is that the test wasn't getting thrown into the lion's den. The test came sooner than that. Like one scholar explains it this way. He says, the dangers we don't see are generally much greater than the dangers we do see. When we watch Daniel being lowered into the lion's den, we hold our breath in fear and anticipation. Yet, by that point in the story, the real danger has already been overcome and the great battle has been won. It is indeed a wondrous miracle that God preserves one of His children in the lion's den, but it is no less a miracle that God's God graciously saved Daniel when all of Babylon attempted to pry apart those two aged hands tightly clasped together in prayer. You see, Daniel's real battle was in that open window to his prayer room. Like, will I remain faithful to God? What matters more, worship of the one true God or safety? Now, some of his detractors, or maybe even some of his friends could have said to him, hey, Daniel, you know what? You don't have to pray in front of an open window, right? I mean, there's nowhere in the Bible that says when you pray, go to an open window so that everybody can see you. That's not in the Bible. You don't have to go to an open window to pray. But Daniel knew what was at stake for him. Like not opening the windows would have been simply the first step in his compromising of his convictions. Like Daniel knew that about himself. It would be yielding to culture instead of yielding to God. Placing the fear of man above the fear of God. And so he had, he had to stand in front of the open window. What's your open window? Now others could have said, Daniel, go ahead. Go to the window and pray. That's okay. But do it silently in your heart. Okay, just just stand there. You don't need to kneel. Just look out at the night sky. You can even face Jerusalem, but don't move your lips. Stay in, let it stay in your heart and do not kneel. But Daniel knew that the posture of his prayer was an outward sign of his attitude of submission and that it reminded him of his true position before God. I am a servant of the Most High God. I am a man under authority. And I defy anything and anyone who will stand before, between me and obedience to the Most High. So Daniel defied the order. As one writer puts it, you can quietly obey God in your room, keeping your windows shut, but that's not where the lion-stopping power is. It's time for us to throw up in the windows to turn our faces toward Jerusalem and lift our hands in faith to God. Don't be afraid. The God who shuts the mouths of lions 
is ready to help. See guys, when you try to please everyone, you will always fail. But when you set your heart to please only one, like I, I, there's one person in all of the universe that I must please. Guys, it simplifies all of my choices. I mean, have pity on me. I'm a man under authority. I don't get to decide some of these things. They're too big for me. I just line up with what God has said. It simplifies my choices. And as a result, I always win. And you will always win even when you lose. It'll either be victory or victory. Either reward or it'll be reward. And then in closing, I just want you to note what happens in verses 16 to 20. It's so interesting. Like the writer fixes all his attention on Darius. Like the whole focus of these verses is on the anguish of the king, even while Daniel is like spending the night in a lion's den. Like the writer keeps us in suspense of Daniel's fate until verse 21. Like Daniel is thrown to the lions and we only hear about the king and his sleepless night. Like, why is that? Can I just tell you why? Because, guys, six chapters in, like we know how this is going to play out, right? Like six chapters into this book, we know what's going to happen. We're just wondering if Darius will figure it out. Like God's people will face a test, a trial, a challenge, and they will be faithful. They will take their stand. And the result will be victory because faithfulness always equal victory. And they will be richly rewarded. Guys, we stand now separated from these events by 2,600 years? Shouldn't you know how it's going to play out? Like God's people today will face a test. And if that test is met with faithfulness, you win. You're victorious. And you will be richly rewarded. Be alert. And be of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in your faith. See, all of your life is a test of your loyalty to Christ. Will you live as a pilgrim or as a tourist? Will you choose to win even if it appears for a time that you're going to lose? Will you be faithful even if it seems to accomplish nothing? You see, the chapter ends this way. Darius makes a new decree. Then King Darius wrote, kind of capturing the theme of the whole book, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and He rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Let's pray. Oh, great King, we praise You that the conclusion of the battle between heaven and hell has never been uncertain, but was ordained to end with the victory 
of the Lamb. Calvary broke the dragon's head and we struggle against a vanquished foe who with all his subtlety and strength has already been overcome. When we feel the serpent at our heel, may we remember him whose heel was bruised. But who, when bruised, crushed the serpent's head? Our soul with inward joy exalts in our mighty victor. Heal us of any wounds received in the great conflict. If we have been defiled, if our faith has suffered damage, if our hope is less than bright, if our love is not fervent, if some vain comfort occupies our hearts, if our souls long to retreat instead of standing firm in the fight. O God, whose every promise is consolation, every touch life, draw near to Your weary warriors. Refresh us that we may rise again to wage war and never tire until our enemy is overthrown by the splendor of Your appearing. Give us such fellowship with You that we can be in defiance against the world, the flesh, and the devil with delight that comes not from man and which man cannot spoil. Give us a drink from the eternal fountain that lies in Your unchanging, everlasting love and decree. Then shall our hands never weaken, our feet never stumble, our sword never rest, our shield never rust, our helmet never shatter, our breastplate never fall, as we stand firm in the power of Your might. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.